64,000 is the median number of words per book. Average person reads about 200 words per minute. Simple math will tell us that is one book in 320 minutes. To accomplish this in seven days, numbers say you would have to read for 45 minutes a day. Don't forget to subscribe. Hit that notification button, like, comment, and share. Enjoy. Hello, and happy day. How does slowing down sound to you today? Would you like to reduce the noise for just a bit? Are you ready to make a choice and decide to listen? My name is Igor, SF Walker. I am here to remind people to slow down, to reduce the noise, to walk their lives into a natural flow. Welcome back to the Book of the Week series. Every week, as I read another amazing title, I share it with the world. And today, we look at No Boundary, Eastern and Western Approaches to Personal Growth by Ken Wilber. In this video, we take a full-spectrum view of human potentials. Potentials that reach from matter to body to mind to soul to spirit and in so doing, we integrate the very best of psychology with the best of spirituality, the finest of both Eastern and Western approaches to human growth and development. Stick around till the end. I will share with you some tools I have and use that will help you tremendously in this game of life. Discover a way to find out what actually motivates you, what innate human need is driving all of your decisions and your behavior. I will share some tools to improve your self-awareness, social awareness, self-management, and relationship management. <clears throat> when someone asks, who are you, and you proceed to give a reasonable, honest, and more or less detailed answer, what in fact are you doing? What goes on in your head as you do this? In one sense, you are describing yourself as you have come to know it, including in your description most of your pertinent facts, both good and bad, worthy and worthless, scientific and poetic, philosophic and religious, that you understand as fundamental to your identity. You might, for example, think that I am a unique person, a being endowed with certain potentials. I am kind, but sometimes cruel, loving, but sometimes hostile. I am a father and a lawyer. I enjoy fishing and basketball. And so your list of feelings and thoughts might proceed. Yet there's an even more basic process underlying the whole procedure of establishing an identity. Something very simple happens when you answer the question, who are you? When you are describing or explaining or even just inwardly feeling yourself. What you are actually doing, whether you know it or not, is drawing a mental line or a boundary across the whole field of your experience and everything on the inside of that boundary you are feeling or calling yourself while everything on the outside of that boundary you feel to be not self. Your self-identity in other words, depends entirely upon where you draw that boundary line. 
you come to feel that I am this and not that by drawing a boundary line between this and that and then recognizing your identity with this and your non-identity with that. So when you say myself, you draw a boundary line between what is you and what is not you. The so-called identity crisis occurs when you cannot decide how or where to draw the line. In short, who are you means where do you draw the boundary. The most interesting thing about this boundary line is that it can and it frequently does shift. It can be redrawn. The most common boundary line that individuals draw up or accept as valid is that of the skin boundary surrounding the total organism. This seems to be a universally accepted self, not self, boundary line. Everything on the inside of that skin boundary is in some sense me, while everything outside of that boundary is not me. Something outside the skin boundary may be mine, but it is not me. For example, I recognize my car, my job, my house, my family, but they're definitely not directly me. In the same way, all the things inside of my skin are me. The skin boundary, then, is one of the most fundamentally accepted self-not-self boundaries. As the self-not-self boundary is finalized, brother-ass is definitely on the other side of the fence. The body becomes foreign territory, almost but never quite as foreign as the external world itself. The boundary is drawn between the mind and the body. And the person identifies squarely with the former. He even comes to feel that he lives in his head. And if you were a miniature person in his skull, giving directions and commands to his body, which may or may not obey. What the individual feels to be his self-identity does not directly encompass the organism as a whole, but only a facet of that organism, namely his ego. That is to say, he identifies with a more or less accurate mental self-image along with the intellectual and the emotional processes associated with that self-image. Since he will not concretely identify with the total organism, the most he will allow is a picture or an image of that total organism. Thus, he feels he is an ego and that the body just dangles along under it. The point is that we narrow self-not-self boundary to only certain parts of our egoic tendencies. The persona the individual identifies with only facets of her psyche, persona. The rest of her psyche is then actually felt to be not-self, foreign territory, alien, scary. She remaps her soul so as to deny and try to exclude from consciousness the unwanted aspects of herself. These unwanted aspects we call shadow. At this point, we're not trying to decide which of these types of self-maps are right, correct, or true. We're simply noting in an impartial fashion that there are indeed 
several major types of self, not self-boundary lines, approaching this topic in a non-judgmental way. One other type of boundary line that is today receiving much attention, namely the boundary associated with so-called transpersonal phenomena. Transpersonal means that some sort of a process is occurring in the individual that in a sense goes beyond the individual. Although the transpersonal experiences are somewhat similar to unity consciousness, the two should not be confused. In unity consciousness, the person's identity is with the all, with absolutely everything. In transpersonal experiences, the person's identity doesn't quite expand to the whole, but it does expand, or at least extends, beyond the skinned boundary of the organism. It is not identified with the all, but neither is his identity confined solely to the organism. The point of this discussion of self, not self-boundary, is that there are not just one, but many levels of identity available to an individual. These, these levels of identity are not theoretical postulates, but observable realities you can verify in and for yourself. Obviously, since there are different levels of self, there are different levels of self-conflict as well. The reason is that each level of the spectrum, the boundary line of a person's self, is drawn up in a different fashion. But a boundary line, as any military expert will tell you, is also a potential battle line. For a boundary line marks off the territory of two opposed and potentially warring camps. People are flocking to psychotherapy, Jungian analysis, mysticism, psychosynthesis, Zen, transactional analysis, Rolfing, Hinduism, bioenergetics, psychoanalysis, yoga, and gestalt. What these schools have in common is that in one way or another, they are trying to affect changes in a person's consciousness. But there, the similarity ends. The individual sincerely interested in increasing his self-knowledge is faced with such a bewildering variety of psychological and religious systems that he hardly knows where to believe, begin whom to believe. Even if he studies all these major schools, he's up to come out just as confused as when he went in. For these various schools taken as a whole definitely contradict one another. All these different schools of psychology and religion do not so much represent contradictory approaches to individuals and their problems, but rather complementary approaches to different levels of the individual. The aim of psychoanalysis and most forms of conventional psychotherapy is to, is to heal the radical split between the conscious and unconscious aspects of the psyche so that the person is put in touch with the all of his mind. They aim at reuniting the persona and the shadow so as to create a strong and healthy ego which is to say an accurate and acceptable self-image. 
In other words, they are all oriented towards the ego level. They seek to help an individual living as a persona to remap their self as ego. Now, the aim of most so-called humanistic therapies is to heal the split between the ego itself and the body, to reunite the psyche and soma so as to reveal the total organism. This is why humanistic psychology called the third force, the other two major forces in psychology being psychoanalysis and behavioralism, is also referred to as the human potential movement. Now going deeper still, we find the aim of, of such disciplines as Zen Buddhism or Vandata Hinduism is to heal the split between the total organism and the environment, to reveal an identity, a supreme identity with the entire universe. They're aiming, in other words, for the level of unity consciousness. Growth fundamentally means an enlarging and expanding of one's horizons, a growth of one's boundaries outwardly in perspective and inwardly in depth. That is precisely the definition of the descending the spectrum or ascending it, depending on which angle you prefer. Growth is reappropriatement, rezoning, remapping, an acknowledgement, and then enrichment, or even deeper and more encompassing levels of one's own self, nature. It's not only smarter than we think nature, nature is smarter than we can think. Nature, after all, also produced the human brain, which we flatter ourselves to be one of the most intelligent instruments in the cosmos. Every decision we make, our every action, our every word is based on the construction, conscious or unconscious, of boundaries. I am not now referring to self-identity boundary, important as that certainly is, but to all boundaries in the broadest sense. To make a decision means to draw a boundary line between what we choose and what we not choose. Quite obviously, from minor incidents to major crises, from smaller decisions to big deals, from mild preferences to flaming passions, our lives are the processes of drawing boundaries. The peculiar thing about the boundary is, however complex and rarefied it may be, it actually marks of nothing but an inside versus an outside. In short, to draw a boundary is to manufacture opposites. Thus, we can start to see that the reason we live in the world of opposites is precisely because life as we know it is a process of drawing boundaries, and the world of opposites is a world of conflict, since every boundary line is also a battle line. Here is the human predicament. The firmer one's boundaries, the more entrenched are one's battles. The more I hold on to pleasure, the more I necessarily feel pain. The more I pursue goodness, the more I am obsessed with evil. The more I seek success, the more I must dread failure. 
The harder I cling to life, the more terrifying death becomes. The more I value anything, the more obsessed I become with its loss. Most of our problems, in other words, are problems of boundaries and the opposites they create. The point is, we always tend to treat, treat the boundary as real and then manipulate the opposites created by the boundary. We never seem to question the existence of the boundary itself. Pleasure and pain are just the inseparable crest and a throw of a single wave of awareness. And to try to accentuate the positive crest and eliminate the negative throw is to try to eliminate the wave of awareness itself. We can begin to understand why life, when viewed as a world of separate opposites, is so totally frustrating and why progress has actually become not a growth but a cancer in trying to separate the opposites and cling to those we judge positive, such as pleasure without pain, life without death, good without evil. We're really striving after phantoms without the least reality. Might as well strive for a world of crests and no throws. Buyers and no sellers, lefts and no rights, ins and no outs. Thus, as Wittgenstein pointed out, because our goals are not lofty, they're illusory. Our problems are not difficult, but nonsensical. This is only because we accept as real the boundary line between the opposites. It is, recall, the boundaries themselves which create the seeming existence of separate opposites. To put it plainly, to say that ultimate reality is a unity of opposites is actually to say that in ultimate reality there are no boundaries anywhere. Boundary lines of any type are never found in the real world itself, but only in the imagination of map makers. As Alan Watts pointed out so often, those so-called dividing lines equally represent precisely those places where the land and water touch each other. That is, those lines join and unite just as much as they divide and distinguish. These lines, in other words, are not boundaries. The line, far from separating concave and convex, makes it absolutely impossible for the one to exist without the other because of that single line. No matter how we draw a concave, we have also drawn a convex. Because the outline of the concave is the inline of the convex. Thus you will never find a concave without a convex. For those, like all opposites, are fated to intimately embrace one another for all time. All of the lines we find in nature, or even construct ourselves, do not merely distinguish different opposites, but also bind the two together in an inseparable unity. The line, in other words, is not a boundary. Our problem, it seems, is that we create a conventional map, complete with boundaries of the actual territory of nature, which has no boundaries, and then thoroughly confuse the two. Our words, thoughts, and ideas 
are merely maps of reality, not reality itself, because the map is not the territory. The word water will not satisfy your thirst. But we live in the world of maps and words as if they were the real world. Most of our problems of living then are based on the illusion that the opposites can and should be separated and isolated from one another. The point is not to separate the opposites and make positive progress, but rather to unify and harmonize the opposites, both positive and negative, by discovering a ground which transcends and encompasses them both. It indeed is an illusion we will never find a trace of. We might then spontaneously understand that what we thought obstructed our unity consciousness never existed in the first place. Now, what exactly does it mean to look for the primary boundary? To look for the primary boundary is to look very carefully for the sensation of being a separate self, a separate experiencer and feeler, which is set apart from the experiences and the feelings. I am suggesting that if we carefully look at this self, we will not find it. And since this feeling of being an isolated self seems to be the major obstacle to unity consciousness, to look for it and then not find it is at the same time to glimpse unity consciousness itself. It seems so obvious that I am the hearer who hears sounds, that I am the feeler who feels feelings, that I am the seer who sees sights. But on the other hand, isn't it odd that I should describe myself as the seer who sees the things seen, or the hearer who hears the sounds heard? Is perception really that complicated? Does it really involve three separate entities, a seer, seeing, and the seen? Surely there are not three separate entities here. Is there ever such a thing as a seer without seeing or without something seen? Is there ever seeing without a seer or something seen? The fact is the seer, seeing and the seen are all aspects of one process. Never at any time is one of them found without the other. Our problem is that we have three words, the seer, sees, and the seen. For one single activity, the experience of seeing. This is precisely why the sages advise us not to try to destroy the self, but simply to look for it. Because whenever we look for it, all we find is its prior absence. There is simply experience. There is not something or someone experiencing experience. You do not feel feeling, think thoughts or sense sensations any more than you hear hearing, see sight, or smell smelling.
I feel fine, means that a fine feeling is present. It does not mean that there is one thing called an I and another separate thing called a feeling, so that when you bring them together, this I feels the fine feelings. There are no feelings, but present feelings, and whatever feeling is present is I. Throughout humankind's history, various shamans, priests, sages, mystics, psychologists, psychiatrists have tried to point out the best way to live suffering correctly so as to live beyond it. They have confronted men and women with insights into their suffering so that, correctly understanding their suffering, they might go beyond it and live in freedom. But the insights offered by the various doctors of the soul have not always been of the same nature. In fact, these insights often drastically contradict each other. The most ancient soul doctors advise us to contact God. The modern soul doctors advise us to contact our unconscious. The avant-garde soul doctors advise us to touch our bodies. The clairvoyant soul doctors advise us to transcend our bodies. Today, more than ever before, our doctors of the soul are in strident disagreement. And as a general result, we are paralyzed in the middle of our suffering, confused as to what it means, confused even about whom to ask what it means. Frozen in our suffering, our deeper insight into reality do not and cannot emerge. We cannot enter our suffering with awareness so as to liberate the insights hidden in it. We cannot endure our suffering with fruitful results unless we know what it means, why it is occurring. I move my arm, she will say, but she will not say, I beat my heart. She will say, I am eating my food, but she will not say, I am digesting my food. She will say, I close my eyes, but she will not say, I grow my hair. She will say, I wiggle my toes, but she will not say, I circulate my blood. In other words, she, as ego, will identify only with those actions which are voluntary and controllable, and all the rest, all the spontaneous and involuntary actions, she feels are somehow not self and untrustable, despite the common sense notions to the contrary. Doesn't it seem odd that you identify with only a fraction of your total being? Isn't it strange that you call at best one half of the organism you? To whom does the other half belong? See, spiritual practice is not one activity among other human activities. It is the ground of all human activities their source and their validation. It is a prior commitment to transcendent truth lived, breathed, entombed, and practiced 24 hours a day. To entune your real self is to commit your entire being to the actualization of that self in all beings, according to the primordial vow 
however innumerable beings are, I vow to liberate them, however incomparable, incomparable the truth is, I vow to actualize it. If you feel this deep commitment to realization, to service, to sacrifice, and to surrender, through all present conditions, to infinity itself, then spiritual practice will be your way naturally. May you be graced to find a spiritual master in this life, an enlightenment in this moment. And there you have it, no boundary, by Ken Wilbur. Please do help out. It is easy, simply like this video, so more people can enjoy it. Share it too and spread the word. Leave a comment and share your thoughts. Subscribe to my channel and stay up to date. And the link to this book is in the description below. So buy it and read. Never stop learning, especially learning about yourself and nature. So gift yourself by taking the free humanist test on my website and find out what actually motivates you, what innate human need is driving all of your decisions and your behavior. And if you feel you are ready, to improve your self-awareness, social awareness, self-management, and relationship management even further, do check out my Master of Life Awareness program. The links are in the description below. Thank you. Love and respect.